and welcome everyone to Cornerstone Community Church. Uh, Two weeks ago, I shared a message with you, and the message was on how to be a good witness. And we talked about four levels of being a witness. The first level was witnessing through godly character, right? Second level was witnessing with our good works. The third level was witnessing with the proclamation of the gospel. And the fourth level was witnessing through suffering and death. Okay, so we talked about four levels of witnessing. Um, Would you agree that we should be doing those things to testify of the goodness of God? Yes, we should. This week, what I want to talk to you about is uh, the motivation for being a good witness Um, And the title of today's message is, What is it going to take? What is it going to take to be a good witness? And so we're going to talk about that today. I want to encourage us. I want to see us build up to be better witnesses for Jesus Christ. Now there's a number of things I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk to you about external circumstances, diligence, zeal, and uh, love as four ways that we can be motivated to be a good witness for Jesus. So let's go to external circumstances. How many of you know that God will allow or bring about external circumstances to motivate us? Okay. In the book of Acts, the power of the Holy Spirit had fallen on the day of Pentecost. Right? Peter stands up, gives a sermon, 3,000 people get saved. A bunch of people start getting saved. We've got all these witnesses running around. The church is born. It's a glorious moment. Well, a little time goes on. Everyone's in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, Jesus had told them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In other words, hey guys, once you get this Holy Spirit thing in you, this person, you need to go out and tell everybody about it. Well, they're all in Jerusalem, so we have a problem. What motivated them to leave Jerusalem and witness? Persecution. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Stephen had just been martyred, if you remember that. Saul was ramping up his hatred towards the saints. And he says, in Acts it says this, at that time... A great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered, what did they do? They go about whining and crying that they were having to leave their homes and lose everything? Oh, they went everywhere preaching the Word. Really? That's pretty neat. So they get persecuted, they get scattered. External circumstances push them out of their comfort zones, push them out of their homes, push them out of their town, and they had to leave. I said, well, I guess, I guess we need to take them literally. I guess we really do need to preach this gospel throughout Judea and Samaria and to the othermost parts of the earth. But external circumstances, they're not the best way to be motivated necessarily. I was thinking today, um, you know, we've all seen the news 
with the economy uh, seeming on the brink of collapse. And uh, it could. You know, God could allow it to happen. I pray that it doesn't happen because the Scripture says to pray for your rulers and those who are in authority. Why? So that you may live a peaceable, a peaceful and gentle life. So I want a peaceful, gentle life uh, for the gospel to go out in. But the whole thing could crumble. It could, or it could halfway crumble. In which case, there would be chaos and there would be unrest and people would be full of anxiety. People would be stressed out. They wouldn't have any money to pay their bills, to buy their food, to afford their homes. And it would be terrible. And what would we do? We would either be swept in the tide of anxiety and chaos or we would be paddling in a boat of peace with Jesus in it, rescuing and pulling people out. Isn't that a pretty cool picture? So, is it going to take an economic emergency to get us to show compassion on those who are hurting and reach out? It could. God could allow it. It could happen on Monday. I have no idea. I want to be ready for it, but is that really what the best motivation for us to be good witnesses? Um, you think of the health, our health, right? When do we change our eating behavior. It isn't when you read a little article that you should eat right. It's not looking at that little food pyramid, right? That they teach us from grade school. That's not when you change. You change your eating habits when the doctor said, if you don't do this, uh, you're going to get something serious. And even then we don't change until it starts to happen to us. Once it starts to happen to us and we see the results of something is actually affecting our body for destruction, we think, I think I better change now. If you're like me, that's what I do. Isn't that what you do? When, when does the man go to the... You know, typically, I guess men are stereotyped. Uh, we don't like to go to doctors, apparently. Uh, that's true. I've known some men like that. I don't have any problem with it because God works through doctors as well as anybody. But... When will a man go to the doctor? Well, when something's wrong with him, right? His wife begs and pleads for him to go. He won't go. Or it could be a woman. You won't go. Why? Because you haven't felt the threshold of pain hasn't increased in you enough to push you to where you need to go. Is that how we want to be motivated for the Gospel? No. Will God allow that to happen to us sometimes? Yeah, He will. Um, No, there's a better way to be motivated for these things. And so I want to talk to you about three things. External circumstances, God allows them to happen. Hey, if they happen, just be ready for them. But the the next one is diligence. Okay, we can do something proactive, right? We can have diligence. Now, let me read you what the Scripture says about diligence. Uh, Proverbs 12, 27, I believe it is. It says, the lazy man does not roast what he took in hunting, but diligence is man's precious possession. Proverbs 12.27 Okay, so we're contrasting diligence with laziness, right? And this man, I guess he went out and killed something and never prepared it to eat. That's kind of silly, isn't it? You're a man, you go out to provide some food for your family, you kill something, just let it rot. You come home, sorry, honey. Where's the meat? I killed it. Where is it? Well, it's rotting in the field. 
Why didn't you bring it in? I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I was trying to think, why wouldn't somebody roast what they took in hunting? Why wouldn't she do that? Um, it reminds me of a story when I lived on the farm in Bedford. I, got a, I took care of cows. And I got a cow every year for watching this man's cows. And one time, uh, I was going to take my cow to Dinner Bell Meat Markets here in, in town in Lynchburg. And so I borrowed a gun. It may have been from Jack. And I was a 22, Jack. And so I go down, I shoot this bull with a 22, and it, it, I hit it right between the eyes. And I was kind of afraid. I, didn't, I thought it would charge me. I didn't know what it would do. Well, it kind of shakes its head like a fly hit it. I'm thinking, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> this isn't good. This isn't supposed to happen. He's supposed to fall down. Well, he didn't fall down. He kind of went on eating. I shot it again in the head. And all of a sudden, the thing just falls down. I'm like, yes, that's what it's supposed to do. So the cow's on the ground. Now you've got to cut the cow's throat. It's kind of gross. Well, I don't have a sharp knife. And how do you know? I don't even know a cow's hide is very thick. I mean, leather. Well, I had a hacksaw, and I won't describe it to you, but it's not a pretty process, okay? It's really ugly. My whole point in this story is it is not easy to bleed an animal, to dress an animal, to quarter it, to cut it up, bring it home, build a fire, and cook this thing. I mean, it takes hours to go through all this. No wonder this guy didn't want to prepare what he took in hunting. It takes some diligence to get this animal... Back, back to the place where you live, cut up, cooked, so you can actually eat it. So next time you're out at McDonald's enjoying your cheeseburger that took 1.3 minutes to serve you, you'll appreciate uh, this story. So diligence is kind of the opposite of laziness, and the word actually meets to ex- means to exert yourself. Okay, <clears throat> So we're exerting ourselves. There's a certain eagerness with it. It means to hasten. Because the diligence means to hasten to do something, to be eager uh, to exert yourself to something. So if I'm hastening to do something, there's a time element with diligence, right? Uh, Also, if I am being eager to do something, there's some passion. If I endeavor to do something, there's a planning element also with diligence. Okay, so diligence requires planning. It requires a certain timing, and it requires some energy to do. Okay? Now let's take a look at uh, what Paul required of Timothy uh, about diligence. 2 Timothy 4. Let's take a look at that. Uh, 4, 9 through 13. Uh, the background of 2 Timothy is this. Paul knows he's about to die. How do we know? Because he said, I'm about to die. Chapter 4, verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. It's time for me to go. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, and also for everyone who loves his appearing. Right. So this is Paul's last, possibly his last letter that he wrote. What's he going to say to Timothy? What are you going to say? This is Timothy. Paul was mentoring him, right? What would you say to your understudy as part of your last words? Verse 9. Be diligent to come to me quickly. Why? 
For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and he's departed for Thessalonica. Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Say, well, that's just a grocery list, right? I mean, what's the big deal here? Well, the big deal is the apostle, if you read, um, it's not on your PowerPoint, but at the very end of the chapter, he repeats again, do your utmost in verse 21 to come before winter. Why do you think he needed his cloak? (laughs) Winter's coming, right? I mean, he's not foolish. He wants his cloak. He wants to be warm. Why do you think he needed the parchments and the books? Because... He wanted to study. Um, He wanted to write letters. Uh, He wanted to read the Scripture. He was a teacher, right? Up until his end, he was going to do the work of the ministry. Now, remember I told you there was a time element to diligence? What's he say to Timothy? Hey, come quickly. One reason is uh, Demas has just left him. So apparently Demas was helping him in some capacity, and now he's gone. So now he wants his right-hand man, Timothy, to be with him. Timothy, I need you, buddy. Come on. So now, Timothy gets this laundry list from the apostle. Now, Timothy could just kind of lay around and just, yeah, I'll get to it. But actually, Timothy has to use some zeal. He has to use some planning. He has to use some energy. He has to use diligence, right, to do what Paul asked him to do. What's he have to do? Well, he has to go get Mark. Where does Mark live? I don't know. Then he has to go get the cloak at Troas before he comes. So now he has to think, all right, should I go get the cloak first or should I get Mark first and then then go get the cloak? So he's got to do some planning. And then he's got to remember to bring all this stuff. And then he's got his own responsibilities as Timothy is at Ephesus and Timothy is doing church work. He's doing the work, right, of an elder. And so he has to work himself out of his responsibility. He's got to take care of all his responsibilities and then do Paul's list and then get to Paul in Rome. Diligence. Now, can you imagine if you're Paul and you want your parchments, you want your scrolls, you want your cloak, you need companionship, you need help, and your helper doesn't show up? Well, Timothy was at the theater. One day, he's texting on his phone another day. <laughs> Not really, but I mean, you see, you see what's going on here. You see diligence. He is, there's an aspect of trust uh, with diligence. Uh, the amazing thing is, if we're diligent, God will reward us. In uh, Proverbs 12, uh, 29, it says this. Uh, Do you see a man who excels at his work? He will not stand uh, before unknown men. Right? Proverbs 12. Do we have that on the PowerPoint? I'm sorry, Proverbs 22, 29. Thank you. Do you see a man who excels at his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Well, that word for excels is translated by King James as Diligent. So what happens if you're diligent with your work? You'll stand before kings. Say, I don't think so. 
I'm diligent with my work and I don't stand before kings. Obviously, the Proverbs give us general principles, right? In other words, God will reward you. Your diligence will get you known, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in school. Somebody will take notice of your diligence. And they'll reward you. But it's not only for our reward. I mean, we should take the reward and say, thank you, Lord. But what else should we do with rewards? We should testify. We should be a good witness. You know, I thank God. I praise God for this. Uh, So we see diligence is rewarded. Okay. Diligence needs an energy to drive it. Okay, diligence needs energy. The energy of diligence we get from zeal. Okay, so now let's talk about the second thing. What does it take to be a good witness for Christ? We need to have zeal. I love this word. It's probably one of my favorite words in all the Bible. The word zeal literally means to be hot or boil over. Okay, it means to be fervent. The Scripture to be the fervent effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That word fervent is the same word translated for zeal. Okay, so you can picture this word. It's a burning hot. It's a boiling over. It's a passion. It's energy. Let me give you three examples of zeal from the Scripture that's great. Let's go back to Elijah. Take a look to see what he did. In 1 Kings chapter 18. The background for Elijah is this. Elijah was a prophet during wicked King Ahab and Jezebel's reign in Israel. And so Ahab and Jezebel get rid of all the true prophets of the Lord except for Elijah. And they set in all these prophets of Baal. 450 of them. So, Elijah, single-handedly, is going to take on the power people of his day, Ahab and Jezebel. He's going to take on 450 prophets of Baal and 400 more prophets of Asherah. And not only is he going to take them on, he's going to summon them to a mountain, confront them, and we'll see what happens. Does it take some zeal to do that? This guy had to have some zeal to alone confront the power people of his day. Let's take a look. First uh, Kings chapter 18. And let's see, what verse do I want to start in? Verse 19. It says, now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. He's speaking to Ahab. He's telling Ahab the king, the murderous king, what to do. Hey Ahab, gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Bring the 850 up to the mount. That takes guts. He's barking off commands to the power people. So Ahab, sent, so Ahab obeys him. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, if 
follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Who had the authority in this confrontation? Isn't that incredible? He's ordering 850 wicked men and the king. And they're, they're speechless before him. How can he do that? Well, he has God backing him up, doesn't he? That's how he can do that. And they, they didn't answer him not a word. So he goes on to tell them, all right, this is what we're going to do. You take a bull, you cut it up in pieces. I'm going to take a bull, cut it up in pieces. We're going to have a sacrifice. And the God that answers by fire, he is God. Okay, you go first. So they cut up the bull, they lay all their pieces out, and they call all morning, they call afternoon, they call on Baal, right? They're, they're calling out, they're crying out, they're wailing, they're cutting themselves. And then Elijah starts mocking them and taunting them. You better speak a little louder, he probably isn't hear you. He's sleeping, you better wake him up. So now he's taunting 850 wicked men who could kill him if they wanted to in a second. That's incredible. Nothing happens, of course. And then finally, he utters a few words of prayer. They pray and whine all afternoon long for Baal to come. doesn't come. He utters like one or two sentences. And you remember, uh, before he prayed, he doused his sacrifice with water. How many times? Three times. Okay, so he prays a simple prayer. Ah, oh, Lord God, <laughs> you know, come honor the sacrifice of your servant. Bam, fire comes out of heaven, burns up the sacrifice, burns up the trough, burns up the water, burns up everything in it. The 850 people, they all hit the dirt. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Elijah didn't stop there. You know what he said? He said, take these people, bring them down to the brook Kishon, and execute them. What? Now he's, he's commanding, he's commanding the execution of these prophets. Prophets. Verse 40. Do I have that up there? Yeah, seize them. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Does this man have some zeal? Would you like to have his zeal? He stood up. Now, who's behind Ahab and Jezebel? We know from Daniel... What was going on in the air that Daniel couldn't see when he was praying? There were principalities battling it out, right? The prince of Persia. What do you think was going on with Elisha on top of Mount Carmel? There's a battle in the heavenlies that we didn't read about and we couldn't see, but I guarantee it was going on. And God had filled Elijah with such a zeal that he had the authority of the living God to execute these false prophets. Why? Because in Deuteronomy, the law said that if someone worships a false god, they are to be executed. All he was doing is what God told him to do. He had some zeal. I love Elijah. But even more than Elijah, God has some zeal, doesn't He? One of my favorite all-time scriptures is in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Take a look at For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Hundreds of years before this actually happened. And the government will be upon his shoulder, says Isaiah. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom 
to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. He's talking about the coming kingdom of the Messiah. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I love that. How did it happen? How did Messiah get here? Why wasn't Herod able to kill him? Because the zeal of the Lord purposed that it would happen. And it happened, right? The Messiah came. The Messiah was crucified. The Messiah ascended. The Messiah sent His Holy Spirit. Here we are 2,000 years later talking about it, singing praises to God about it. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. In other words, God has a burning passion for His purposes and plan that will not be thwarted, period. Period. If God says it, it's done. Say, well, He's God. He has that zeal. I can't have that zeal. Wrong. Who lives in us? The Holy Spirit. The One who has burning zeal lives in us. Do I have access to the zeal of God? You better believe it. So can I say, God, would You give me some zeal? Part of the way You see things. Would you give me your heart for people, your compassion, your love, Lord? Because I don't have that. Would you give it to me, Lord? Yeah, I'll give it to you. You got it. It's that simple, isn't it? Then there's a man. Everyone knows him, John Wesley. John had some zeal. You're going to love this. Let Let me read to you a little bit about John Wesley. Wesley averaged three sermons a day for 54 years. How would you like to do that? (laughs) Preaching more than 44,000 times. In so doing, he traveled by horseback and carriage more than 200,000 miles. About 5,000 miles per year. Did he have jets? His published works include a four-volume commentary on the Bible, a dictionary of the English language, a five-volume work, on natural philosophy, a four-volume work on church history, the histories of England and Rome, grammars on Hebrew, Latin, Greek, French, and English languages, three works on medicine, six volumes of church music, seven volumes of sermons and controversial papers. He also edited a library of 50 volumes as the Christian library. He, started, he arose at 4 a.m. He worked solidly through to 10 p.m., allowing brief periods for meals. Generous do that to himself. In the midst of all this, he declared, I have more hours of private retirement than any man in England. At age 83, he was piqued to discover that he could not write more than 15 hours per day without hurting his eyes. Bummer, he could only get in 15 hours. (laughs) At age 86, he was ashamed to admit that he could not preach more than twice a day. In his 86th year, he preached in almost every shire in England and Wales, and he often rode 30 to 50 miles a day. What drove this guy? Zeal. This guy had a burning in him. At least 54 years, right? And we know, what do you have, like 14 kids? And, uh, he had a huge family. He had, he had a huge family. He had an amazing wife, too. Do you see a picture of zeal? <laughs> He needed some zeal with that family. Um, We need zeal. Zeal is the engine 
or diligence. You're not going to be diligent if you don't have zeal, usually. Usually. But diligence and zeal are absolutely useless unless there's love. Right? There has to be love. And so everything comes from love. And I want to share a story with you about love. I mean, you know all the scriptures on love. It's a book I've been reading. I've read this twice, and I've shared this with some of you over the years. It's called The Hiding Place. I'm sorry, it's not called The Hiding Place. That was a different book. It's called The Journey by Myrna Grant. And it's about Rose Warmer. And uh, <clears throat> I encourage you guys to get this, if you can still find it. But Rose was motivated by love. She was a Jew, and um, she was in her 30s in the late 1930s. She turned 30 in 1939. And she lived in Hungary. And so Hitler is ramping up his machine and he is devastating Europe. He's just taken over. So as she grows up in her 20s, she's very self-sufficient. She's very proud. She's very stubborn. She's very talented musically. And, um, and she's very miserable because she doesn't know the Lord. And so through a series of things that God takes her through, uh, she tries to pursue her dreams as she tries to be successful. She fails utterly by the grace of God. She's absolutely miserable. She became a median. She conjured up spirits. She talked with the demonic. I mean, she, she was in the New Age. All this, just looking for something in life. And of course, she couldn't find it. Uh, one time, a uh, Christian missionary came from America. He was a Jew, which is pretty neat. And she heard him speak from the Old Testament. And it floored her. It floored, she, was, she had been trying to read the Bible. She could not understand a word of it. And now this Christian missionary starts to speak. And he starts witnessing to her. And she gives her life to the Messiah. And it was awesome. Two weeks later, and he mentors her. Him and his wife take her in. They teach her how to read the Scriptures. They teach her about serving the Lord. They teach her how to be with Jesus. Is a beautiful picture. Well, two weeks later, um, she wanted to just quit her job and be a missionary. He's like, well, I don't know if you want to be a missionary. Um, it's pretty hard. And the hardest mission field is probably to the Jews because they don't uh, like Jesus very much. <clears throat> so she pushed him and pushed him. And he said, well, you know, you pray. Well, she wanted, to, she wanted to witness to the Jews. This is what she said as he tried to, he was trying to have her count the costs. She said, I don't care if it's a hard mission field. This is the only thing I can do and the only thing I want to do. Remember, this is only after two weeks of being a believer. I want to be a witness. I can't speak of anything else. I can't think of anything else. I can't read anything else except the Bible. I can't continue with my regular work anyway. My patients can't stand it when I talk to them about all the time about the Lord Jesus, and I can't stand not to. Isn't that awesome? And that launched her career as a missionary to the Jews in 
Nazi Germany. But she did something that was different that just floored me and still floors me. Uh, As she lived in Hungary, they're rounding up all the Jews and they're bringing them to the cities to transport them to the death camps. And uh, somehow she didn't look Jewish, so... And also, she had papers that she was a Christian missionary. Uh, so they let her alone for a time. And as she, she's seeing all these Jews, and she, she was running to be with them. She was running, you know, they lived down in the woods, and they were hiding out in caves, literally in caves. They, they hid out in the woods. Well, she would go to them. She was traveling from town to town with her Bible. She was, she was testifying. She was preaching. She was speaking. She was telling them about Jesus, the Jews. And finally, she saw all of them being collected and sent off. And and her heart just broke within her. And she said, I've got to go where they are. She said, if they go to be persecuted, I need to be persecuted with them. And if they go and they're getting killed, I need to go and be killed with them. Who else from the Bible said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It was similar to Ruth, right? She's saying, I want to do whatever suffering they're going through, I'm there. And so she tells her mentor and she tells the pastor and the people in the church what she wants to do. And of course, they really encourage her to pray about that decision. Uh, Really, she wanted to turn herself in. Nobody turns himself in. Do you you ever hear of anybody that turned themselves in? Well, she turned, she ended up, she was in agonizing in prayer. She really believed it it was God's will. And one day she said, all right, God, Whatever you want, I'm at peace with it. She uh, went outside to do an errand or something, and she was taken and rounded up, and she was taken uh, to the concentration camps. So she spent the next year or two um, literally in hell. That's the only descriptor there is for it. In fact, I got so upset reading it, I just cried. I said, God, how could you do that to her? How could you do that to her? I couldn't, I couldn't fathom what she went through. Honestly, I could not fathom it. <clears throat> and she voluntarily did it. I mean, it's, I thought, you know, she did. She suffered like Job. And I thought, she may have suffered more than Job. And I thought, she suffered like Paul. I don't know if she suffered more than Paul or not, but she was up there. And I thought, this is what Jesus did. And I thought, how? I mean, God's kind of teaching me what love is. Why did, she get, why did she turn herself in? Love. She had such a burden of love for her people that she chose to go the incredible torture, the incredible cold, naked, destitute, yelled at, screamed at, beaten repetitively to the point of death. But God spared her. She didn't die. Oh, she was sick when she was released. She was sick for years and years and years and years and years and years. Sick. Could hardly move. But you know what she did when she got out? When they liberated her? It's incredible what she did. Um, everyone told her to rest. And she did do some resting. Well, there was a massive migration to Palestine. The Jews were going back 1947, 1948. Palestine was declared a Jewish state, right? I mean, Jews were excited about this. 
The only problem was all these Jews were going back. There was nowhere to live. They're living in these tense cities. So now it's just more squalor conditions, the same as, not quite the same as the, the concentration camps, but pretty, they didn't have the food, they didn't have the water, they didn't have the, a lot of the amenities that we would have. She goes back. And the, the picture I have is that she was, you know how we have a spirit man, we say in our, our spirit? Her spirit man, by the grace of God, commanded her physical shell to work and serve and love. And she dragged her body through hell on earth to serve and out of love for the Lord Jesus. And so, I, I mean, she was destroyed. I'll, I'll spare you the gory details. You get the book and you can read it. But it's given me a new understanding of what love is. And now when I look back on Paul, and now when I look back to see what Jesus did, I think of what she did. And I think, what am I willing to give my body, make my body my slave, instead of I'm my, my body slave. Do you know what I'm saying? My body says, ouch, don't do that. It hurts. She could care less about her body. She was going to minister. She was going to write. She was going to witness. She, would, she let Hundreds. She led thousands of Jews to the Lord through absolute horror and terror in the most appalling conditions on the face of the earth. God raised her up, set her in the midst, and demonstrated His love to those people through that woman. She had love, she had zeal, and she had diligence. She was in bed resting. And all the Jews were going to Palestine. They said, you've got to rest. She said, No. She was diligent. She said, I've got to be with them. She said, in the concentration camps, there was hope. How could there be hope in the concentration camps? Because there was a hope of getting out to seeing your loved ones. But now once you're out and you realize your loved ones were dead and your home is gone, there's no hope anymore. So she said, I've got to go be with them. I've got to give them hope. So she went to Palestine to give them hope. Incredible. <clears throat> Absolutely incredible. Um, if we don't have love, zeal and diligence don't count for much, do they? You remember what Jesus said to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation? Uh, I'm not going to... It's on PowerPoint, but in Revelation it said this. that um, He said, You've, I know your labor. I know your work. You've been diligent. You've been zealous for me. He said, but this I have against you. You've fallen from your first love. It wasn't okay. Because he said, if you don't repent, I'm going to come away and put an end to your church. That's what he said. That was Jesus talking to the modern church. So that's how important having love is. I'm like, God, this is pretty serious stuff. Yeah, it's pretty serious stuff. So it's a wake-up call to me. I need love. I really seriously need to push my selfishness, to push my apathy, to push my whining, self-pity attitudes that I get and make them the slave of my spirit man. That's what I have to do. You know, I, I can't live like this. 
can't live like I've been living. You know, I'm not looking for persecution. The Scripture doesn't call us to look for persecution. The Scripture calls us to love people. That's what we need to do, is to love people, even to the point of suffering and death. So what's it going to take? What's it going to take to be a witness for Jesus Christ? You've got to sit at His feet in love. The busyness of this life, the cares and concerns. John said in Revelation, repent. God, forgive me. I run, my business runs my life. My kids run my life. My family runs my life. School runs my life. My anxiety runs my life, God. It really does. And I don't have any time for you. And I don't spend very much time with you. And I'm a wreck, God. I don't have any love. I don't have any zeal. I don't have any diligence. And I don't know what I'm doing. That's what we should do. And what do you think God will do? He'll pour it out. He'll just... They'll just open the floodgates and love will just come flooding through and just take us up on a big wave and just take us into the bosom of Jesus. That's what God wants. What is it going to take? That's what it's going to take. As uh, we get ready to celebrate communion, I looked at communion through the lens of this story I read about Rose Warmer. You know, communion is proclaiming his death until he comes, right? Well, it's useless to proclaim his death unless you also proclaim his resurrection. And we do it in the church because it encourages us and it builds us up and we focus on the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and how He sent us His Holy Spirit and how we now have His love that we can give out. But we also proclaim His death where? Outside of these doors, don't we? So there's a sense where we can practice communion when we walk outside the doors. We proclaim His death to a dying lost world on their way to a lake of fire. We open our mouths and say, hey guys, do you realize Christ died for you? And no, that wasn't the end of the story. He rose from the dead. And if you put your trust in Him, you'll have everlasting life. Isn't that awesome? How long did it take me to say that? Seriously. And, and I said it because that morning I was sitting at the feet of Jesus and He just poured His love into me. And so now I'm just a container of love ready to dump on some unsuspecting person who needs love, right? Can I have the people that are going to serve communion come up? Let me just read you what the Apostle Paul taught about communion. 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take and eat, this is My body which is broken for you, and do this to remember Me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. 
So today we have the opportunity to do what the Lord commanded, and we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember the covenant that He made with us with His blood that He shed on the cross. All of history looked forward to that covenant, and all of history from us looks backward to that covenant. That covenant is the centerpiece of history. So when we're celebrating communion today, we are celebrating a tradition that two for the people have been celebrating for 2,000 years. The death, burial, resurrection, and covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just pray. Father, I just thank you that we can celebrate this covenant with a group of saints today. And Lord, we praise you for sending your Son. And we praise you that he made a new covenant with us, a better covenant that cost him his life. And he paid for it with his blood. Oh, we remember it today, Lord. And we are so thankful. We are so thankful. May it edify us and build us up. In Jesus' name.